following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. If you would please uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 1. This is the last prophet in the Old Testament. We'll start a, a walk today, verse by verse, through this prophecy. It's brief, but it's very important. The title of the message today is A Mirror Image of Today. Here's what... God says through Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1, a, a pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, declares the Lord, yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. And though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish they will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would speak very clearly to us today. That as we hear your word, as we understand what it means by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would also be gracious to us, that as we hear and understand, we'd also take it to heart. We'd also be obedient and do what you tell us to do. we take this truth that you show us today, and we wouldn't just set it aside but we truly hear what you say and we would listen. Listen and obey for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. This brief but final prophecy here has a lot to say in a short amount of time and you can really compare this biblical text with modern times, which is kind of scary if you want to think about it that way because this particular prophecy was written, inspired by God, about 430 B.C. So 430 years before Jesus came. So if you want to compound that, we're in... 2022, at the end of 2022, 
Add 430 years to that. So nearly 2,500 years ago. Now just let that sit for a second. Nearly 2,500 years ago, God said some things and issued some warnings. And yet, we could look at our world today and it could have been written right now. That one fact ought to clue us in to how God's Word is true. It's timeless. It's not antiquated. It is always relevant. It was the last prophecy, as I said, of the Old Testament, and there was silence from God on a, on a wide scale until John the Baptist showed up to prepare the way for the Messiah. And, and this message here, this prophecy, it's filled with indictments against God's people and warnings for God's people. And after each warning, the people respond by asking this, uh, this question. Well, how? You say this, but how, how is that the case? They, it's almost like they want evidence. Shows their spiritual blindness. And so the theme of each warning that we'll find in this short prophecy is indicated by the response of God's people to the warning. And here's, here's what's going on. In, in a broad picture, here's what we're going to see. The people want to measure God by a human standard. A human earthly standard. And here's the two things. This is kind of introductory, but there are two things that, that are wrong with the people's perspective. And this, this applies throughout the whole prophecy, not just today. The two things that are wrong with the people is, one, they believe they hadn't done anything wrong. And two, they believe God hadn't done enough for them. So just imagine that perspective. And then apply it to today's world. They don't think they've done anything wrong and they don't think God has done enough for them. To the extent that James Boyce would write these words, perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, Malachi describes that modern attitude that considers man superior to God and that has the audacity to attempt to bring God down to earth and measure Him by the yardstick of human morality. Can you imagine and I'm sure you probably never run into anybody that would have a perspective like this where they think they're smarter than God. And they think they know more than the creator of the universe. Unfortunately, sarcasm intended, is everywhere. That attitude is everywhere. So, let's take a look at what God says to us beginning in the first five verses of this Prophecy. Now the first verse, as you may have noticed when, you, when we read it, it's the introduction. It's God's about to say some things to Israel through Malachi. Interesting little uh, footnote. The name Malachi means my messenger. So kind of appropriate for the prophecy, the final prophecy of the Old Testament. My messenger. So that first verse, you just see the words of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, 
Let's get to what happens. First thing, number one, God declares His love. Now this first part of this second verse is not um, vague. It, there's no confusing part of it. It's just a statement. I have loved you, declares the Lord. Period. Isn't that great? That's, that's amazing news. Now, you could react to that news in all kinds of different ways. You could be, uh, you could smile. You could uh, be thankful, grateful. You Maybe you could express uh, a similar notion back to God. Well, I, he says, I've loved you. We love you too, God. Or, or maybe, maybe when the God of all creation looks at you and says, I love you. And then you're just, when you, when you think about what that means, maybe you're too overcome with emotion to say anything. Maybe you just can't fathom how. I'm, I'm nobody. And the God who created everything loves me? That's amazing. Maybe you can't even put into words how that makes you feel. And all of those responses would be appropriate. But that's not what happens here. Because you get to the very next sentence in verse 2, and you get the second thing. First of all, God declares His love. Second, humanity questions His love. And so in the very second phrase in verse 2, you see these words. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Now I want you to think about that for a minute. You know what that means? It's as if God condescends and comes down to His people. He's right there in front of His people and He says, I have loved you. And they look at God Almighty and say, Really? Prove it. That's not just audacity. That is the height of disrespect in the face of God. So that it's, not just, um, it's not just an ignorance, which means a lack of knowledge. It's not just, uh, Well, God, you say you've loved us. I know that's true, but could you just remind them? That's not what they're saying. It's disrespectful. How have you loved us? It's an attitude attached to it. It's a, a doubt, a disbelief. Because as I said before, this theme that kind of goes throughout this whole prophecy, the two things, they don't think they've done anything wrong, and they don't think God's done enough for them. So he says, I've loved you. They respond by saying, really? And how exactly have you done that? So the implication is that if God really did love them, he would have done a lot more for them, like in material things. He would have made them rich. Like, God, if you really love me, then, man, you'd pour out all this wealth and material possession and everything. You'd, you'd give me all kind of stuff I want if you really loved me. And that, that, by the way, is uh, a difference in a human perspective and a godly perspective of what does it mean to be loved by God. 
they have the audacity to demand that God show how He's loved them, completely di disregarding the fact that they are, this is Israel, that's His chosen people. He's provided for them from the very beginning. So I'll, just to get a, a good uh, view on this, let's go back just briefly to the book of Exodus. In your mind, you don't turn there. But what has God done for the people of Israel? I mean, we're listen, listen to what I'm talking about. We're talking about a nation of people that ever since the 12th chapter of Genesis, when God made a covenant with Abraham and said, I'm going to, uh, through, through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Uh, your, your descendants are going to be more numerable than the stars in the sky, than the sands on the seashore. And, and I'm going to bless the world through you, this covenant. And then you, you see Isaac is born. And then Abraham proves his faithfulness to God in Genesis 22 when God asked him to go sacrifice and he's willing to do it. God stops him and says, I'll provide the sacrifice. Another pointing forward to Jesus in Genesis 22. And all the things that happen from that point forward, and you get to the Exodus, God's people are in bondage in Egypt, and he sends Moses and Aaron and delivers the people from bondage. And you can see even then, the ungrateful attitude in God's people, the short memory of God's people. They can't even remember all the good that God's done for them. And what do they do? As soon as they get out of Egypt and they are approaching the Red Sea, you remember what happened? Yeah, that's right. They start grumbling. They start complaining. Well, why'd you bring us out here in the desert? We'd have been better off just staying in there as slaves in Egypt. Really? So from the very beginning, as God has called this people His own and provided for them and protected them and given them everything they needed, and yet, here, they forgot about all that. They've forgotten, over, I'm talking about over the course of events that take place in the entire Old Testament, they've forgotten how God has loved them. And so it's just it's hard to fathom that perspective. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 29, Isaiah prophesied about the people. Isaiah 29 verses 13 and 14 says, The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their fear of me is just a commandment of rulers therefore behold I once again deal marvelously with this people wondrously marvelous and the wisdom of their wise men will perish and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed matter of fact in Matthew's gospel chapter 15 verses 7 through 9 Jesus himself would quote that prophecy from Isaiah as he's looking at the state of affairs in Jerusalem, he's looking at the religious establishment and the Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites. And if you go over to Matthew 15 and look at verse 7, it says, You hypocrites, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
And you know what that means to us? Now, now you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say. Anybody can talk a good game. Anybody can say whatever they want to say and can be very convincing. It always reminds me of being back in school, particularly middle school and high school. Because that's when young men are really starting to kind of feel themselves a little bit and, and think they're something, you know, and kind of want to make an impression. Well, that's what happens a lot of times in school, you know. And uh, the little arguments pop up and people want to fight over just totally silly, insignificant things. And here's what usually happened. I mean, occasionally it would actually come to an actual fight. But here's what would usually happen. There'd be a whole lot of talking until that escalated and got a little bit more and more. And then one of them would step, step up, bow up a little bit and get ready to throw a punch. And next thing you know, I'm just, I was just kidding. You know, it's all, it's all great when you're talking, but then when you've got to back it up, are you willing to do that? Anybody can talk a good game. But when it comes down to actually backing it up with action, that's a different story. And this is what's happening and has been happening with God's people. We switch over to the New Testament. This theme just continues on. This, this whole perspective of God's people. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first five verses, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, but denying its power. And then he closes that little section by saying, you should avoid men like this. This is the kind of character that these folks have when they talk a good game but they're not actually doing anything about it. It's like this. When I run into people out in the community from time to time and they'll, and I, I want to talk about, you know, what are the, where are y'all going to church? Are you, you know, are you involved in church somewhere? And usually I'll get a response like, oh yeah, yeah, we go down to, and they'll name a church. And then here's what I always do. And this, this might be mean of me. Maybe my motivation isn't totally pure, but here's what I'll do. Whenever they name a church, and usually I'll recognize it if it's in the community, and I'll know the pastor. So what I do is when they name that church, I didn't make them do that. They offered it up. So I, oh, really? Uh, yeah, who's the pastor down there? Um, well, we hadn't been down there in a little while, so I don't know who the pastor is. Okay, so, so is that your church or is it not? Don't, don't get too upset what I'm about to say. If 
you don't know the name of the name of the pastor of the church, that's not your church. If you haven't darkened the door of a church in a year, hold on a second. Everybody got the seatbelt on. If you hadn't come in a church building in a year, you're not a member of that church. Now, I don't know what your definition of church member is, but the Bible's definition is somebody who is a part of the church, who is there, who is in fellowship, who is serving, who is being served, who is encouraging and being encouraged, somebody who is a part of the family. If you haven't been there in a year, you're not part of that family. You can't be. Because step one is you've got to be there. I don't care what list your name is on. Y'all all right? Everybody okay? That's what being a part of God's family looks like. It's not a name on a list. It's a relationship. It's so much more than a name. And so Paul, the sad part thing here is that Second Timothy passage I read you, Paul is not just talking about the world at large. He's talking to the church. That, you know, in the, in the last days, that's what people, even in the church, some of them are going to look like that. And, and because, how, how do we know that? Do you know what we read over in 1 John? See how all the Bible fits together? It all bears on the same subject. In 1 John chapter 2, the Bible says that they went out from us because they were never really of us. If they would have been of us, they would have remained, but they have gone out to show that they're not. Billy Graham used to estimate that he thought 50% of people sitting in a church building on a given Sunday were not Christians. And I, you know, I don't know if that, that was his, his estimation. I don't know if that, how accurate that is, but that was what he thought from his travels and his experience. Billy Graham, you know, pretty credible, wouldn't you say? And that was his thought. But this is the kind of perspective that leads to that. When God says, I love you, and you ask, really, how? Have, you, have we forgotten? Have we, have we forgotten? We're standing on the other side of the cross. How can we possibly question the love of God. So, God declares His love. Humanity questions His love. Number three, the last part. God responds to humanity's question. You get to the last part of verse 2 and you see God's love in salvation. Jacob and Esau were brothers. God loved Jacob. And so, what is this supposed to do for us? You know, the two brothers. One was blessed, one was cursed. There was a conflict there. So you, you, you introduce this concept, this biblical theological term of election, salvation. Okay? Those who are Christians. Robbie Gallaty 
said in his commentary on Malachi, he said, election then, salvation, is a biblical expression of God's love for us in Christ. It's meant to humble us, remove boasting, remove entitlement, remove pride, and eradicate self-reliance. God did it. I didn't save myself. I didn't earn anything. I'm not good enough to do that. God did it. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we got our act together. We were still sinners. Christ died. Is that not loving? Is that not the most amazing expression of love we can imagine? So we see God's love in election, salvation. We also see God's love in rejection. Because it says God loved Jacob. God hated Esau. In fact, he goes on to say, I made his mountains a desolation. I've appointed his inheritance for the jackals in the wilderness. Jacob following God, Esau rejecting God, Jacob is blessed, Esau is cursed. Don't actions have consequences? Don't, don't we know that from, from reality? And, and then you see even in, in more specific terms, not just the fact that Jacob is blessed, he's following God. Esau is cursed, he's rebelling and against God and go in the other direction. And then you see, look at this contrast, the way this passage ends, verses 4 and 5. It's Here's what Edom, which is that represents Esau, that's the, the nation that represents Esau. Edom, here's what they think versus here's what God says. That's, too, that's an important distinction. The, you know, and, and let's think about it in our terms. Man plans and God laughs. Right? Man has a perspective, but God has knowledge. Omniscience is called. All knowledge. So look at the scripture here, verse 4. Though Edom says, we've been devastated, but we'll rebuild. We'll rebuild the ruins. And let's look right beyond that. The Lord of armies says this. They might build, but I'll demolish. So here, here's what that says to us. In our humanity, in our sinfulness, we might be tempted to say, well, I know I had a little, little trouble. You know, They may not attribute it to God, even though that's the, the issue, spiritual disobedience, rebellion. Well, we might have been devastated. We, we can build it back. We'll rebuild it. You know what I'm reminded of? Funny little saying. Professionals built the Titanic. Amateurs built the ark. Isn't that interesting? Not just amateurs. Amateurs that were instructed by God and followed what God said. 
You remember what the captain of the Titanic was quoted as saying before they set out on their maiden voyage? Even God can't sink this ship. Really, how'd that work out? Yeah. Edom, Esau, thinks we've been beaten down, we've been devastated, but we'll return, we'll build it up. And then the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies says, they might build it, but I'll tear it down. Men will call them the wicked territory and the people that the Lord has cursed forever. And so the, the conclusion of this whole scenario is at the end of verse 5. Everybody's going to see the hand of God. And as a result, everybody's going to say, and he says, Israel, you yourselves will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. Not just here among us is the Lord great. The Lord is great over all the earth. It's His creation. He demonstrates His Sovereignty and His love toward us. So what are we supposed to do with this, with this attitude, with this first warning? The Lord declares, I have loved you. And yet His people respond, how have you loved us? We should look to the cross. In, in every instance, at all times, under any circumstance, we should look to the cross. There is no greater, more profound demonstration of the love of God than to look to the cross of Jesus Christ where He sent His only Son to this earth to assume the form of a human being which is so far beneath who He is to live a life free from sin in perfect obedience to God and His law, and then to willingly, voluntarily allow Himself to be beaten and tortured and ultimately killed, which is what should have happened to us because of our sin. He was our substitute, our perfect substitute. He satisfied God's righteous requirements. And because of that, He was not to remain in the grave. He rose up on the third day, victorious over death, over hell, over all of our sinfulness. And then after demonstrating that He was alive over a period of 40 days, then He ascended back into heaven, which is His rightful place. He sat down at the right hand of God, signifying the work was complete. This is the truth of the Gospel. This is what allows us the privilege of coming into God's family, being forgiven and being granted eternal life, is to trust in Jesus, believe in Jesus, <coughs> surrender to Jesus. You don't think Jesus is in the Old Testament? He's on every page. He was in Genesis chapter 3 when God was handing out the penalties for sin when he said there's going to be a conflict, there's going to be en enmity between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel. Remember? He might have a bruise on his heel, but he's going to 
crushed the head of that snake. That's Jesus on the cross. Jesus is in Genesis 22 when Abraham goes up the mountain to sacrifice his only son. And God says, I'll provide for myself the sacrifice. And there's the ram caught in the thicket. God will provide the sacrifice. And you fast forward a few thousand years. John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness to announce, Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And a few days later, when everybody's reeling about, who is this psycho man? Look at how he's dressed. Who is this weirdo? And then he says, behold, when he sees Jesus walking up, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's love. That's the love of God in Christ. Do we dare look God in the face with a straight face of our own and say, how have you loved us? Just look at Jesus. That's all we have to do. We don't have to look any further than a bloody cross and we'll see the love of Jesus. And, and it can be yours. Just... Surrender. Trust in Christ. Believe the Gospel. Surrender to Jesus. Don't harden your heart. When you hear the truth and the, the, the great love that's available, don't be so foolish to say no. Say yes to Jesus. Say yes to Jesus today. Let's go. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.